This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Item number one, was there a budget deal this week between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Republican-controlled legislature before the legislature left town on its Thanksgiving-slash-hunting season break? The answer is no. It looked like a deal was imminent, but no such deal at the very end. The governor said, well, this is disappointing, and the Senate Majority Leader, Mike Shirky, said, I just don't trust the governor. So it it all boils down to can these cuts that Governor Whitmer made a month ago uh, be restored, at least in part, through what is called boilerplate language on an ad hoc basis just for this year, or does there have to be a change in the law, which is what the legislature wants to say the governor cannot do this anymore. She cannot move money around through her administrative board within departments to spend it in ways that the legislature did not intend. They send her money specifically earmarked for specific projects within departments. She basically took that money and gave it to other things within that department that she wanted rather than what the legislature wanted her to sign off on. So this is going to continue on, folks. There's going to be a break here for a week or two. Some people are saying it's going to be three weeks. It's going to be December if this thing can be resolved. And otherwise, there are a lot of people out there uh, waiting for money, not getting it, Uh, The fiscal year started on October 1st, and uh, we're getting to the point where it could be a quarter of the way into the fiscal year, and they won't have their money. Other things happened this week. Daylight savings time, as everybody knows, ended last weekend. And every time this happens, every, you know, six, seven, eight months, uh, you know, spring forward or fall back, uh, should we be on daylight savings time all the time. Uh, Should we get rid of daylight savings time altogether and just be on standard time, which we always were before World War I, believe it or not. And then we were on standard time again between the wars. And then we went back on daylight savings time part of the time uh, during World War II. And then it was reinstituted. We actually had, do you know this, a vote statewide in 1968 on daylight savings time. And believe it or not, this election was the closest of any that I've ever heard of. Literally 44 votes statewide decided we stayed on daylight savings time uh, for that particular time. And guess what? We're 51 years later and we're still on it at least part of the time. The question is, when does it start? When does it end? Uh, We even talked at one point debated back in the 70s, having double daylight savings time during winter months. So anyway, this is an issue that's going to percolate on. Uh, Should deer be able to be hunted over bait piles in Michigan? That has come up. The House passed a bill this week saying, yes, uh, we should allow deer baiting. 
the DNR says no. So we'll talk about that later in the show. Uh, should college athletes be paid? Uh, some legislators have introduced bills on that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but what happened in the election on Tuesday? Three big things happened in mayor races. Uh, Jim Fouts and Warren was elected, reelected overwhelmingly, 57% of the vote to 43% for his opponent. Uh, the two closest elections in the most closely watched cities were in Flint and Livonia. And in Flint, challenger Sheldon Neely, a state representative, knocked off the incumbent Karen Weaver by just over 200 votes. Very close election. In Livonia, uh, a seismic shift in power. Uh, Maureen Miller Brosnan, uh, who is a Democrat, these are nonpartisan races, but she was a proxy Democrat. Uh, beat the uh, proxy Republican Laura Toy, a former state legislator who was uh, going into the election, the president of the Livonia City Council, by just over 100 votes. That was even closer than Flint. So two very close races. Uh, Brosnan will be the first person of Democratic persuasion to be elected mayor in Livonia in several decades. Uh, and then we can look at the ballot proposals. They were dominated by school bond proposals. Uh, 72 districts had a whopping $2.85 billion on the line Tuesday. The biggest one was in Ann Arbor, where there was a $1 billion proposal for widespread capital improvements. Uh the answer to what happened to these issues is uh, 81% of them passed. Uh, in Ann Arbor, it, the $1 billion proposal passed with 53% of the vote. So you pair that with $46 million sought by community colleges, and education made up about 98% of all the revenue governmental requests that were made in various communities and districts around the state this past Tuesday, November 5th. And again, 81% of them passed. That's a pretty darn good percentage positive uh, result on passing these bond issues. Um, there were also other proposals. Uh, there were road proposals. Uh, there were uh, library proposals. There were police and fire protection proposals, ambulance proposals. There was even a request in the city of Lowell in Kent County uh, to impose a 1% municipal income tax. And that was paired with one that said, okay, uh, how about a 7.6% mill reduction in the city's property taxes to go along with that. The two were tie-barred together so that they both had to either be approved or disapproved for a clear result. But you know what happened in that result. Uh, the property tax reduction proposal passed, but the 1% income tax failed. So there will be no 1% income tax in Lowell, but neither will there be any 7.6 mil reduction in property taxes. Um, so these odd-numbered years, what kind of turnout usually is there? Well, there's evidence that 
uh, turnout was up in eight of Michigan's 14 highest populated counties. But overall, the turnout statewide was about the same as in previous odd numbered years. And that means it's around 20 percent. Pretty pathetic. Uh, One out of five voters actually showed up to vote statewide last Tuesday. Uh, But again, uh, these proposals around the state on these other issues, um, eight of the 63 non-school proposals were uh, rejected by voters. So that means 55 of them passed. That is really good. Uh, the biggest one to fail was, uh, I think, uh, in Lathrop Village. They were asking for $21 million. That one failed. But the other 10 roads-related millages passed, save for one in Cass County's Calvin Township. About $25 million was approved for street repair there. Kind of interesting to me, folks, that, you know, if fix the damn roads is supposed to be everybody's top concern. Fact is, uh, almost all the proposals on the ballot, both in sheer number of proposals and in the money involved, was school related. It wasn't road related. There wasn't much involving road funding at the local level. Uh, but what there was uh, more or less passed most of the time. We'll be back with our first guest in just a minute. It's going to be an interesting uh, rest of the program. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Representative Joe Tate from the 2nd House District. He's a Democrat from Detroit. In the 2nd District, I believe, has most of it like two-thirds of East Detroit and then three of the gross points. Is that correct, Representative Joe Tate? Uh, yes, it is, Bill. Thanks uh, thanks for having me. But, yes, the lower east side of Detroit, uh, we cover a good uh, catching feature is that we have the FCA uh, assembly plant there that's that's working on expanding. And then we cover Gross Point Park, Gross Point City, and Gross Point Farms. Right. Well, I want to ask you about a couple of things. First of all, you have this um, small business um improvement package the the house democrats you and a couple of other sponsors announced this week what's that all about yes so uh the small small business big impact um package essentially looks at uh supporting our small businesses throughout the state as you know you know sometimes it's used as a cliche now but we you know we say that our small businesses are a backbone of of our um of our state, and and that is true. And what we want to do is continue to uh, help them and support our small, not only startups, but those businesses that have been around and are looking to grow and and expand and uh, be sustainable. Yeah. In what ways are you proposing to help them? Yes. So um, it's a five-bill package, uh, and there are a number of things that we're doing. One is uh, we're looking at offering um, tax incentives for small businesses for apprenticeship training. 
uh, as well as incentivizing businesses if they move into an employee-owned model, which is something that uh, has been taking hold uh, across the United States. Uh, additionally, uh, we're looking at uh, creating a, a uh, office within Michigan Strategic Fund to help our small businesses uh, with capacity building and access to capital uh, there, so under, under LEO. And uh, also looking at uh, working with NDARD, uh LEO as well, is opening up uh, a technical assistance office uh, for farmers uh, as well, so on the agricultural side of things, to help, uh, to help our, our, uh, our farms and uh, agriculture in the state. The Republican Party likes to think of itself as the party of business, including small business. So do you get the impression that the Republicans and the majority in the House would look favorably on this package? I think so. Um, you know, there's still conversations that have to be had um, with, with, with across the House and, and the Senate as well. But, you know, these are this is good policy. We're looking at supporting our small businesses, and everyone wants to. And not only in urban areas, but we're looking at rural areas as well um, with supporting our farmers. And we have over 47,000 farms uh, across the state that would stand to benefit from uh, the policies in the package as well. So I, I think this is, you know, it, it shouldn't be a partisan issue to support our small businesses across the state of Michigan. Have these bills actually been introduced at this point, or are they just going to be introduced? Uh, so we have um, introduced, so we, we were out getting signatures. We have the bills, and um, I believe they were introduced uh, this, this week. So do you think they'll all be in the same committee? Um, it depends. We'll have to see how, how that that does shape out. Um, I would imagine that we're, we're trying to keep them all together. Um, we'll have to look at, at, again, where it would it would float to. But since they're all overlapping in the intent of supporting our, our small businesses, I would hope that, that they would be um, all grouped together in one committee. And you've had conversations with the chairman of these committees um to see whether they might be able to put them on the agenda fairly soon or at least get a hearing on them? Uh, we're still working on that. Okay. Still, still working on that. Right. Okay, let me ask you about something else, and that is that you and another representative, Brant Iden, a Republican from the Kalamazoo area, who was a college tennis player, and, and of course, you were an athlete at Michigan State, a very good one, um, a football player, uh, this is addressing this issue that is becoming more and more prominent of whether or not college athletes should be paid. Um, and so what does your proposed legislation do? I gather that you haven't actually introduced it yet, but what what is it modeled on? Is it California and what they did out there? Uh, where is this going? Sure. Um, so, I would I'll first off say that, you know, Representative Iden and I, uh, we view this as a fairness issue. Um, as, as you mentioned, uh, last month, uh, the state of California um, signed the bill into law allowing student-athletes, allowing them to be compensated for their, their names, images, and likenesses. Uh, so we, we do have a similar 
similar legislation that we did introduce uh, this week. And what it looks at is, is essentially that allowing student athletes um, to not be uh, hurt or not have their eligibility uh, threatened if they would like to be compensated for their athletic reputation. Um, so we did introduce a two-bill package uh, this week uh, that has been introduced and that, that does look at that. Okay, so you actually have introduced the bill. So in other words, as I understand, this is not a case of a college administration or athletic department actually paying the athletes to perform on the gridiron or on the tennis courts. But it means, let's say, if uh, Brant Iden is playing tennis at Kalamazoo and he wants to give tennis lessons on the side to somebody, which apparently he did when he was playing, uh, he could actually be compensated for that. Uh, he could be paid by, let's say, the parents of a of a student tennis player uh, without being declared professional and losing his amateur status. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So all all this legislation does is is allow student athletes the opportunity uh, to be compensated and not not the university or the institution paying the players. Uh, the, the 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 idea is we don't want any student athletes to be um, to have any penalty uh, for them going out to be compensated. Um, so just ensuring that they can maintain their eligibility while being compensated um, for their name, image, and likeness. Yeah. Also, I mean, there are certain athletes obviously that have their images used in you know advertising and stuff by various entities and they don't get anything for that. Uh, but this bill would allow them to possibly be compensated for the use of their image or reputation or icon or whatever it is, uh, if it's used by some commercial entity. Yes, that's correct. That is correct. So if you are a student athlete and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with what's what's happened the past couple de- decades with uh, with student-athletes looking at um, wanting to be benefited from their name, image, and likeness. Uh, so, so if there is an opportunity, this legislation would have... Okay, I, I got it. Listen, we could not- talk... We could, we could talk about this more, but we're out of time on this segment. But you've really summed it up well. Thank you, Representative Joe Tate from the 2nd House District in Detroit. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Bill. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Representative Graham Biller from the 93rd House District. He's a Republican from DeWitt. Uh, He was born and brought up in Ovid, which I once represented at one time. Um, And the 93rd House District today uh, is all of Clinton County and I think in Gratiot County, the city of Ithaca and 13 townships. Is that correct, Representative Graham Biller? That's correct, sir. Thanks for having me. Okay. You are, I think you were chairman of the committee, our chairman of the committee, sponsor, whatever, about expungement reform. Expungement. Will you explain what you're talking about and what happened in the House this week on that? 
Yeah, I'll nutshell it for you. So I do chair the House Judiciary Committee. Early on in my term chairing the committee, I felt like there was a little bit of a hole in the law where we had a very narrow, unused expungement um, law here in the state of Michigan. And currently in the state, you can get one felony and or two misdemeanors set aside from your record, from your public record. Now, law enforcement can still see it, um, and prosecutors can still use it going forward uh, if you committed another crime. But that's sort of the basis. And frankly, what we found is that, A, no one was using it because no one really knew about it, and that, B, every time someone did use expungement, the statistics showed that they did a lot better going forward. They did better when it came to getting a job, getting a promotion, getting housing, uh, just across the board an improvement in their life um, and their ability to be a taxpaying citizen um, in the state of Michigan. So we saw a lot of power behind expungement set-asides, and so we put together about a seven-bill package, uh, Republicans and Democrats both, and started meeting with law enforcement, civil justice groups, business groups, and found really remarkable support across the board. So um, last week, excuse me, this week on Tuesday, we caucused, and then we voted it off the House floor, and it's now sitting in the Senate. Do you think the prospects are pretty good for action quickly in the in the Senate? I think the prospects are fantastic. And you've gotten positive signals from the governor's office? Yeah, we've had um, multiple meetings with the governor's office because one of the bills um, deals with automatic expungement, um, which means after 10 years uh, for a low-level non-assaultive felony, it would come off your record if you are um, – if you've stayed away from the justice system, if you haven't committed any crimes or um, been sent back to prison or anything like that, that's got a lot of power, but that's a computer program that's going to be able to need need to read all the records. And so we want to make sure that that's doable and workable. And so we've had discussions with state departments and we do feel like they'll support the concept. Well, so no, right now, uh, what is it like? It never comes off your record if you're a low-level felony, uh, nonviolent uh, offender. In uh, this particular bill, would say after ten years, automatically it goes away. Yeah, that's right. So again, we're doing set aside. We're we're not doing true um, field record, gone forever expungement, which means that law enforcement and prosecutors do have access to that. And that was a big, important sticking point for us. I know law enforcement agreed with us, but. Under our bill package, under the automatic ex, uh, expungement bill, after 10 years, it's off your public record. You get two felonies and or and four misdemeanors in your lifetime, and uh, a computer will be able to read that. It's been done in about five other states, and um, so I know it's workable. I know it's doable, but what we're doing in Michigan here is nation-leading stuff. Yeah. Well, l- let me ask you, you said at the beginning that you found that law enforcement wasn't even really using the current expungement law that we have. Uh, does that mean, you know, what? They weren't even looking at records of people that had been convicted of felonies or misdemeanors at all? Oh, no. Sorry. Uh, let me clarify. Yeah. When I said people weren't using it, I'm telling you that the people out here with however low level or whatever's on their record, most people don't know about expungement. So if you have a crime on your record, uh, let's say a retail fraud misdemeanor, or you got a couple of them, it's not like you're rushing to get back in the justice system and file something with a court. A lot of the times you've moved on, you made a stupid mistake, you paid the price in some manner. 
So we found that every time folks did take advantage, uh, citizens in the state of Michigan with criminal records took advantage of expungement set-aside, they benefited and they did really well. And when we met with people at job fairs and expungement fairs, um, they seemed to say the same thing. Look, I messed up. I want to get this off my record and move forward. I want to get that job and the promotion. So we saw a lot of power in the uh, prospect of expanded expungement. Well, in other words, you're saying despite what you just said, which is certainly valid and that's a great thing, you're saying a lot of people went on uh, trying to get jobs all their lives after having been convicted of something when they were young and they kept getting turned down and not getting the job because the potential employers saw that they'd been convicted of something. And if they had just known about this law, they could have moved to get rid of this uh, that's right. on the no, record. That's right. And if they You're... did, they'd get the job. Yeah, it does open up a lot of opportunities. You'll find, especially in the state of Michigan, because we're doing pretty well, uh, that a lot of folks are hiring. Businesses are hiring. And some, they just can't hire people with felony or, or misdemeanor records. Some are going out of their way to do it because um, – because they need folks to work for them, and so they don't care about a, a past record like that. But if there's 400 job applicants, and on that job application it says, have you been convicted of any crimes, and you can click no, uh, and you can write a, a no answer, you're going to move forward probably a little quicker than the person who, who, who hits yes. And we saw that across the board. Well. Doesn't it then take a lot of education of potential yes. job seekers that they can take advantage of this? Because, I mean, you can make all the improvements you want to, but if they don't know about it and they don't use it, they're going to go on making the same, you know, mistakes that they've made before. Yeah, so a, a big part of this is education. You know, whether that's a website uh, set up to the Michigan Attorney General's office that tells people about their rights um, and the facts that, that are part of expungement, Whatever comes with that, we've got statewide publicity on it, and I've been thrilled about that because that means more people going forward will know uh, about that, the ability to get a, a, their record expunged. So, yes, I think education is a huge part, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, let, let me ask, how does this compare with what has been called ban the box? You've heard about legislation called ban the box. Would you explain what that is and how does it differ from expungement? Yeah, ban the box just says essentially employers can't ask um, if an individual has been convicted of a crime on their, you know, on their job application form. Well, and is that, I guess they run they run in similar veins, and um, for some reason, and again, I've only been in the legislature for almost a year now. Uh, ban the box hasn't gotten any uh, any push in the legislature, but expungement has. And so um, they, they sort of go to the same vein, which is the best, safest, uh, most, you know, the best community is filled with people who are working and who are taxpayers and uh, who are around their family and invested in this state community. And so let's inspire them to get jobs. Let's not just, you know, after an individual screws up and breaks the social trust and commits a crime, let's not just have the government sit on them the rest of their life. Let's inspire them to keep going and, and to be able to get jobs. Right. Absolutely. Well, let me just push this a little further. Let's say that uh, these bills that passed in the House this week, they're approved by the Senate, they're signed by the governor, they become law. 
So somebody applying for a job can uh, truthfully say no uh, when asked, yep. have you ever been convicted of crime? But what if he or she's in a job interview, the employer can still ask the question, have you ever yep. been convicted of a crime? And could then, in other words, the uh, job seekers say no and yes. c- could not be held accountable, you know, like uh, – the the employer would find out, well, in fact, he or she was, and he lied to me uh, in applying for this job, so I'm not going to give him the job. Well, Bill, legally, when you get a crime expunged now, it's off the record. Right. So if you say, not on your record, you are speaking truthfully. Right. Okay, listen, that is a great uh, explanation. Thank you so much, Representative Graham Filler, Republican of DeWitt, 93rd House District. Thank you, Representative Filler. All right. Thanks, sir. Back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have got Representative Michelle Hoytinga of the 102nd House District, which means that not only is she a Republican of Manton, in fact, she's the former mayor of Manton, M-A-N-T-O-N, up near Cadillac. Um, And the 102nd District, I believe, includes Wexford and Macosta counties and a part of Osceola County. Is that correct, Representative Hoytinga? You are correct. Well, I want to ask you about a couple of issues. The first one is we're just on the uh, cusp of hunting season, and you got a bill introduced and through the House this week and sent over to the Senate to allow uh, the hunting of deer using bait. Um, can you tell me what's going on there? Tell our listeners, what's this issue all about? I've heard some, from so many constituents who are affected by this, um, all the way from businesses, uh, small businesses who sell feed, little gas stations, um, hunters from downstate who typically come upstate or up to northern Michigan to hunt. And, and hunters up here, we don't have the cornfields and the, the trees that are more in the lower part of lower Michigan. And so we utilize baiting to harvest the deer. And the, the state has taken that away from us. Well, why did the state take that away? What What is their rationale? So they're using studies from the chronic wasting disease. And the the problem is they believe that baiting will spread chronic wasting disease, and then there's studies that show that's not necessarily true. The science is so flawed that I feel like we shouldn't, shouldn't be making rash decisions on baiting until we have some really sound data and sound science. Yeah, I think um, if I'm not incorrect about this. Representative Gary Howell, who's a Republican from Lapeer County, he got up and apparently he opposed the bill on the grounds, not so much whether deer baiting uh, is a good thing or a bad thing, but he said, we had a referendum on this back in 1996 and people voted to allow the DNR to make these decisions on whether to allow baiting uh, in hunting or not. And, uh, People in, in Michigan, by a majority, said, yeah, let the DNR do it. Uh, the legislature shouldn't be meddling in this. So he said we're flouting voters' will by doing this. But 
as I remember it, Representative Hoytinga, I mean, I've been around long enough. I remember uh, that ballot proposal. In fact, there were two ballot proposals in 1996, but they yeah. were b- about bear baiting, uh, baiting, uh, hunting bear over bait piles. Uh, yeah. Nobody was talking about deer. And and what a, is like the DNR just seized on this and said, oh, well, we got the power to do, you know, whatever we want on this uh, involving hunting of anything. And, and that's the issue right there is I love the DNR. I don't want to see them go away. Um, the loss of hunting licenses is going to dramatically affect the DNR's personnel. Um, they count on these hunting license sales to keep them in business. So this worries me. And so I don't want to talk bad about the DNR, but there are times when our bureaucrats make the wrong decision, and they are not elected by the people. They are appointed. And then I believe it is appropriate at that time for the legislature, who is elected by their people, to step in and intervene. I don't think that's the right choice all the time, but in this case, I think it's very appropriate. The people are are speaking um, I don't believe the science is there, and therefore I felt very comfortable um, putting forth legislation to override their decision. You think you're going to get some support in the Senate? I sure hope so. We got my friend, good friend, Senator Vanderwall over there. He has the same bill in the Senate. Um, we got it through 110 you know, legislature, uh, legislators over here. Um, we barely got it through, but he's got a smaller group to convince, but... Uh, I hope he gets some convinced over there that this is the right thing to do. And I, I've seen a swell of grassroots hunters um, really rise to support this. Not all hunters, um, but a lot of them, a lot of the hunting and sporting groups have gotten behind this and really reached out to their legislators. It's been a, it's been a great thing to watch. The, the people are speaking. Well, then, of course, if it gets through the Senate, you've got Governor Gretchen Whitmer to worry about. What do you think about the likelihood she would sign this. I, I'm i not sure about that. I hope uh, <laughs> she would have some good conversations with us over it and at least uh, put the topic on the table for discussion. That would be that would be a great result for me. Okay, let's switch topics here. Uh, daylight savings time. It just ended last weekend. As you know, we have fallen back in the clock. Yeah. And, of course, last spring we <laughs> sprang forward. And I think you brought up the issue then. And you say, why do we even have this law? Uh, And you said, as I I understand it, we ought to be on daylight savings time year-round, all the time. Why keep springing forward and falling back? Uh, Explain what's going on there. So if you remember, I got a little bit in trouble last time because when I introduced the bill, the people thought I was going the wrong way with it. So they want to – I introduced the bill. We would – bring uh, or fall back and stay there, and people did not like that. They want the daylight savings time. Um, I heard from them overwhelmingly from across the state. And uh, so we amended the bill. We uh, went to Steve Marino, Robert Marino, and he was excited about getting the bill through his committee as amended. And so we would spring forward and stay there and never change back in the perfect world. Okay, well, let, let, let me make sure I understand this. In other words, before you were saying we ought to be consistent year-round uh, without yeah. springing forward and falling back, but you were saying let's just stay on standard time, and you said you got blowback about that. In other words, you think public sentiment is behind daylight savings time re- uh, year-round rather than year-round standard time. Is that what you're saying? Correct. 
I uh, got you. The, okay. The getting dark at five o'clock in the evening is taking a toll, and and the 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 ritual of switching the clock back and forth. I mean, especially as I get older, I feel it more and more. And the teachers are saying the uh, students are feeling it, and they see it in the students. So I have a lot of teachers behind me. Okay. Well, yeah. One one thing. Uh, back in the day, when this was debated, whether we should be on standard time or daylight time, and how long the periods of each would last in a year, agriculture farmers didn't like daylight savings time. This was back in the day. I mean, they they didn't like if you got daylight savings time, it's one less hour of daylight for them early in the day when they get up to milk the cows and stuff yeah. like that. And they didn't like it. Uh, have they changed? Has agriculture changed on this? Are farmers now saying we're okay with daylight savings time, do you think? I believe so. We had a farmer come in. I didn't even ask him. He showed up to the hearing, and he said that his cows are telling him, stop moving the time. <laughs> so um, not only did we get a good laugh, but he made some great points. The cows need to be milked at the same time every day. So twice a year we're messing with um we're messing with nature and, and the milking of the cows. So he made some great points. So in other words, the cows just like consistent time. Uh, they don't care whether how much light there is when they're being milked. They Correct. just want it to be at the yeah. same time. Well, did the Farm Bureau take any position on this bill? I do not believe they have. No, I don't believe they have. Well, do you think you're going to have more success with this year-round daylight savings time than you did when you made it year-round standard time? Absolutely. All the polling I've seen, if you go to my social media, um, people really, really want this. And, but, but they say, and, and they're right, they say this comes up every year, we talk about it every year, and then nothing happens. The good thing, though, is we're seeing movement at the federal level. And so if enough states, start making some noise and doing, you know, statewide legislation, maybe they can get this done at the federal level and make it consistent across the nation. That would be the, the perfect scenario. Well, now, another thing is we have got a strange situation where there are several counties in the western UP that are in the central time zone. That doesn't change under your bill, does it? Right. And, and, and my bill does say that the states surrounding us need to do this with us. Um, we all have the same leg- legislation, and some states are able to get theirs moving. We were very lucky to get ours moving. Um, so we all need to do this together so that we're not kind of on an independent island of, of our own. Well, what do you hear from other states? Is there some possibility that they might be considering what you're doing here in Michigan or trying to do? Yeah, we've reached out to legislators from the other states, and there is a, is a strong appetite. Um, you always get one or two legislators that are adamantly opposed to something like this for whatever reasons. And, uh, but I think if we do it together, um, it, it will be successful. But, again, it really does need to be done at the federal level, and hopefully we can make enough noise to uh, get them to get something done out there in D.C., you know, you can talk about every issue in the world, but people are really sensitive about time. <laughs> Aren't yes. they? Yeah. Well, listen, you've given a great explanation. Uh, thank you so much, Representative Michelle Hoytinga of the 102nd District, Republican of Manton. Representative Hoytinga, thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week. 